Hi, dance friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoyne. And I'm Lydia Murray. We are editors at Dance Media, and in today's episode, we'll be talking about tokenism versus representation in dance, a huge, complicated topic with really wide-ranging implications. We'll be touching on the New York Times epic oral history of Moulin Rouge's COVID journey and what the dance community's takeaways should be from that story. We'll round up some of our favorite dance-specific Bernie Sanders memes because extremely niche memes are the best memes. And then we'll have our interview with Trey McIntyre, the choreographer and photographer and filmmaker whose new project, Flatpak, presents a, a new and sort of innovative model for online dance. So it's a busy episode. But before we dive in, we want to remind you to give us a follow on social media. If you're not doing that already, we're at the.dance.edit on Instagram and at dance underscore edit on Twitter. And the conversation that we have here on the podcast gets so much more interesting when you all add your voices to it. So please do send us a message or add us or drop us a comment. Let us know your thoughts on the dance stories that we're talking about or, you know, tell us the dance stories we're not talking about and should be. We love that, too. Okay, now it's time for our weekly dance headline rundown. Courtney, take it away. All right. While last week's presidential inauguration could not include the traditional D.C. parade due to the pandemic and other concerns, there was a virtual parade across America which featured a nationwide dance-off appropriately titled Dance Across America, directed and produced by Kenny Ortega. If you've got three minutes, guys, just go look it up. It's it's just pure delight it's from really beginning fun. to end. I love it. I love the return of joy. Yes. More joy, please. Yes. So, so necessary. Uh, Marsha Sells has been hired as the Metropolitan Opera's first chief diversity officer. Prior to this role, she was a dancer, then an assistant district attorney in Brooklyn and the dean of students at Harvard Law School. She will oversee the human resources department and have influence over the men as a whole, including the board. So exciting. And she was actually at Dance Theater of Harlem. I mean, we say former dancer, like professional dancer. Uh, You may recall that San Jose Dance Theater had thousands of dollars worth of costumes stolen a few weeks ago. Well, 16 of the roughly 100 costumes were recovered last week after being found in bags left in the street at a local park. Um, Among them were the Spanish tutus for the company's Nutcracker. Uh, Now the company does still have a costume fund that is accepting donations. I wasn't able to find an updated number, but I believe they've so far raised upwards of $10,000 to try to replace the costumes that are still missing. I mean, a little bright spot and a very weird story. Just deeply weird. Is there there a tutu black market I don't know about? Where are they going? It's so strange. I feel like there's a plot here, like for a novel. Yeah. Bungara Dance Theatre, an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander dance company and one of Australia's leading performing arts companies, is returning to the stage after a 10-month hiatus due to COVID-19. Really exciting to see uh, Australia back on stages. Sadler's Wells Dancing Nation, an online festival produced in collaboration with BBC Arts, goes live today as you're listening to this, January 28th. Uh, it features pre-recorded performances from the likes of Akram Khan, Shabana Jayasing, Matthew Bourne, Una Doherty, Birmingham Royal Ballet, English National Ballet, Canduco Dance Company, Ron Bear, a sampling from the theater's annual breaking convention. Basically, I could keep going on. There's more. But suffice to say, it's maybe the best sampling of the UK concert dance scene that I can imagine. And like, I used to live really close to Sadler's Wells, so this is such a great bit of representation 
Uh, and I'm so glad that it just exists out in the world for anyone to be able to see it. Ticking all of Courtney's boxes. The dance world recently said goodbye to Charlene Gem McDougall, a former lead dancer with the Joffrey Ballet. She passed away of ovarian cancer on January 10th at her home in New York City at the age of 69. We also lost the Tony Award winning dance legend and co-choreographer of the chorus line, Bob Avian. He was 83. In a brighter spot of news, uh, Memoirs of Blacks in Ballet has announced a new interactive exhibit launching on its site on February 1st. The Constellation Project, mapping the dark stars of ballet, will illustrate how key Black ballet dancers throughout history intersected with and shaped each other's careers. Um, I have to say, I love anything that takes like key players in dance history and gives us some context to how they existed mm-hmm. like in their time. Because uh, I think it helps eliminate the like lone genius mentality that tends to dominate our thinking about certain figures. Yeah, for sure. And actually, that last headline item is a good segue into our first longer discussion segment, in which we'd like to talk about a piece that Teresa Ruth Howard, who's the founder of uh, Memoirs of Blacks and Ballet, wrote for Dance Magazine this past week. Her subject was tokenism versus representation in the dance community, which is something that's especially critical to consider right now as dance organizations are in the early stages of addressing systemic racism. How can we make sure that as institutions work to diversify their faculties, their casting, their marketing campaigns, their commissions, that we end up in a place where BIPOC artists are not merely tokenized, but actually represented in a real and sustainable way? Like, How can we make sure that this push for inclusion is not a trend, but actually a sign of real progress? So I think sustainable is a really key word to what you just said, Margaret, and something that Teresa points out from the get-go in this article is that oftentimes there's this kind of push because some sort of event in the world happens that makes people say, okay, we need to look at diversity. There is an initial push to appear to be doing that work, and then once things get back to normal, no real change has happened. Uh, So this article is really looking a lot at, okay, what actually needs to be done to make this a long-term change, uh, particularly in the frequently slow-to-change world of ballet. Kind of the key question animating the article is, what is the difference between tokenism and representation? And as you might imagine, that is much uh, more difficult to parse than one would think because representation is part of tokenism by default. And something that Teresa points out is what determines tokenism depends more on why and how someone occupies the space. So it's not just putting a Black artist or administrator or teacher in place to say, hey, we have someone here who is Black, we are ticking this box. It's having them occupy that space in order to, one, allow them to do what they do, and two, actually create change and create momentum towards making things more equitable. Uh, Teresa gets into recent high-profile faculty appointments at major ballet schools. She also gets into waves of digital commissions in the wake of COVID-19 going specifically to Black artists. But one of the things that a lot of this really comes down to that was interesting to me was talking about the idea of consent when it comes to particularly these high-profile appointments that happen. Uh, because they might be saying, I'm here to be a good teacher. And the people at the, f- the people who are making the decisions about the hirings are saying, 
you're here to be an advocate and to change things and to create systemic change. And that shouldn't fall solely on the shoulders of one person. And how much they are involved in making that systemic change is something that they should have full consent over. They should have autonomy in making that decision. I mean, there were just so many important points in this article. The whole piece is just fantastic. Uh, but one thing that stood out to me was also that the disconnect between Aisha Ash's perspective of her role at SAB of being a teacher first and foremost, and the expectation that the organization expressed of her also kind of being an activist. Uh, and that really underscored the importance of communication in these situations. Organizations shouldn't assume that artists or, um, you know, people who are part of the organization who are from marginalized backgrounds want to take on the added role of being change makers for the entire institution. It's a heavy weight to place on one person or just a few people in addition to everything else that they're facing just in terms of, you know, the work itself and then also just pressure they might feel from the community or what have you to just be the best that they can be at their job. It's an issue that uh, extends beyond race, you know, talking about gender, sexual orientation, presentation, identity, all those things like as a human being, you should have full control over how much that is used by an organization you are attached to like that is a person's identity that like they should have autonomy over that and they should be empowered to make decisions about how much that is quote unquote used yeah absolutely let your dancers have a voice in the process marketing also ties into this she gives the example of um what happened when tamara rojo took over at um, English National Ballet in 2012, and there was a rebrand kind of highlighting the company's storytelling. And the marketing approach was transformed so that there wasn't necessarily a correlation between the dancer um, being featured in the marketing materials and um, the dancers on stage, the dancers performing those roles. Um, and that became a problem when Precious Adams was featured. It was kind of considered an example of tokenism. Teresa says in the story that if companies are expected to do better by their artists, then the public needs to check itself as well, which is a very important point. Sometimes people mean well and kind of jump on bandwagons that ultimately hurt the few Black people or marginalized people working at an organization. Yeah, because there was a big public outcry about that marketing campaign saying, right, why are you tokenizing Precious? She's not even dancing this role on stage that didn't acknowledge that it was actually part of, as you said, Lydia, a larger reimagining of how their marketing was going to work. These issues are so complicated. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this also feeds into yet another issue that Teresa raises, which is so for the companies that have been doing the work, maybe a bit quieter, and maybe the companies that are only just now coming to the work, everyone is facing the same question of, if you say nothing about it, no one knows about it. And if you make announcements about it and make a big deal about it is it is it going to be read as you're just doing this to get people off your back you're just ticking a box and so figuring out how to navigate that so that the public has enough information to be able like that transparency so that you're saying like we have not done this well this is what we're doing to change it that's the only way that we as people who are consuming this information that's being put out can actually make judgment calls about yes, you're doing the work the right way. Oh, you made a misstep here. Oh, this is what's actually going on here. It's important for organizations to um, understand that you know, they have room for improvement and that their track records might not be the best. And so there could be a trust issue there. 
um, and understanding that, yeah, it might seem like they're kind of damned if they do and damned if they don't initially, uh, but it's important to do the work anyway. Yeah, transparency, transparency, transparency. Because transparency will earn the trust that is needed. And the thing is that right now, a lot of these efforts, even if they are in earnest, do feel reactionary because the only thing that can tell us if they are or not is is time, is seeing if over time these institutions can continue their efforts in an earnest way. But please, please go read the article in full. We will link to it in the episode description so you can read it yourself. In our next segment, we want to get into a massive piece of reporting published by the New York Times a few days ago, and the paper talked to no fewer than 52 employees of Moulin Rouge the musical about their experiences just before, during, and after the Broadway shutdown. And COVID hit Moulin Rouge harder than any other Broadway show. At least 25 members of the company got sick. And we actually heard from one of them, from Paloma Garcia-Lee, back in our very first voice memo. Bigger picture, this oral history of this past year, it's like a cautionary tale about how a public health disaster can take down even a very commercially successful performing arts venture. But we also think that the cast member's testimony in particular should prompt the dance world to rethink its attitudes toward performing through illness, which have historically been not so great. Yeah, um, a thought I had while reading this piece was this was made so much worse by the show must go on culture of the performing arts. Um, we've talked about this a lot in the past. And it also brought to mind an older article uh, from Dance Magazine titled, It's Time to Stop Encouraging Dancers to Always Push Beyond Their Limits. And in part of it, the author says her ballet master used to tell her, die for it, to avoid simply falling out of releve. Of course, it's not a good message to send students. And that's kind of being taken to the extreme here, of course, but it's a completely unhealthy attitude. As we all know, it has been pervasive for generations in the performing arts and in dance. But I also just wonder what will it take to actually change this? Mm What will happen after this, even after what we're seeing with Moulin Rouge? What do we actually do? We've had these conversations so many times just in the field as a whole And it just seems like it's a vicious cycle. Yeah. Will a pandemic be enough? And if not, what will? I mean, I wanted to call out these two quotes that were back to back in this oral history. First one, Paloma Garcia Lee. uh, And she said, I was out of the show for almost a week. I had the worst flu of my life, but it's Broadway. So you come into the show sometimes when you're not feeling so well. I came back to work long before I was better. Immediately after this quote, uh, Max Clayton, also a dancer, I was paranoid that I was letting people down, looking like a weak, incapable dancer, a whiner, all of the things that so many actors fear. I didn't feel great, but I went back. We are expected to show up. Because that's the mentality. The mentality is, hey, if you don't want this enough, there's another person ready and willing to take your place. You won't be missed. That's the attitude largely across the board like regardless of if you're talking about musical theater if you're talking about ballet if you're talking about concert dance that's the attitude that is impressed upon us and we talked about this in connection not just with showing up to work while sick not just pushing through injury mental health stuff which this mentality only worsens this idea of if you need to take a step back for your own health it means you don't want it enough it's unhealthy it's not cool and it needs to change and There is some concern that maybe in a couple of years we're going to be back to the mentality of, I still show up to work when I'm sick. 
hey, also, this is just a symptom of late stage capitalism. I'm not going to get into all of that. There is that. But it's, you know, you have to hope that we've now lived through a global pandemic, are living through a global pandemic that has completely upended the way that we live our lives. And, you know, the dance world, I think, even more than most. And I I want to believe in my optimistic heart that is there somewhere that the compassion and the honesty and the concern for public health that has come out of this is going to carry us forward and create a kinder and more compassionate attitude to you know, things just like this. Yeah, here's hoping. We have made progress already. Dance companies, I don't think, always had things like physical therapists on board. I mean, progress can be made, so I'm also staying optimistic. Um, This is another one that we encourage you to please just go read the whole thing for yourself. It is full of a lot of heartbreaking things, some hopeful things. Oh my gosh, Danny Burstein. Oh, talking about I can't even talk about it being being on stage as his wife Rebecca Luker who's also a brilliant Broadway performer had just been diagnosed with ALS and then their show shut down and then he got COVID and was in the hospital and essentially this quote about how he acted his way out of the hospital like doing deep breathing exercises that might get his oxygen levels up again performing through illness it's so this mindset that we've ingrained in all these performers is so insane i would also especially if you're someone who's listening to this who maybe wasn't in 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 new york city or one of the epicenters back in march or april it gives you a really strong idea of what it felt like to be here Mm -hmm. and i think that is something that in a lot of places right now like actually trying to understand that is hugely needed uh, also, just to end this on a slightly cheerier note, uh, one of the lighting designers had, a, they were asked about what they've been doing, like new hobbies they found and stuff like that during the pandemic and while they're not working on Broadway. And one of the lighting designers, Justin Townsend, said, I've been having ballet classes with my three-year-old. I have my own tutu. <laughs> <laughs> let's, end on, let's end on that high note. Okay. You know, when I was writing the script, I started typing here that Right now, we need a second to breathe after all that intense discussion. Then I realized that using that phrase after talking about a musical about consumption whose cast was plagued by a respiratory virus would be very wrong. So um, instead, let's say that we need a, a minute to decompress after those intense segments. So for the last portion of our roundtable conversation, we're going to talk about Bernie memes. And specifically, we're going to talk about the dance world's contribution to those inescapable Bernie Sanders memes that circulated after the inauguration, because even though meme culture cycles incredibly fast, and even though in some ways the inauguration itself feels like it happened 100 years ago, these memes, dare I say they're timeless? They're so good. I'm not over it. (laughs) I I like my personal favorite remains. Uh, someone took an archival shot of Pina Bausch in her Cafe Mueller and just photoshopped Bernie sitting at one of the cafe chairs, <laughs> like with his arms crossed as Pina's running behind him. And it's just, it's, it's the most perfect thing that I could imagine. I just I mean, love seeing the way that so many different cultures and subcultures have kind of put their own stamp on the Bernie thing. It's like everyone can relate to it in some way. Everyone, mm-hmm. you know, we, we can make him fit in so many different contexts. And we all just, seeing us all embrace this one cultural trend in our own unique way. It's nice. 
Like the people who were editing him into Miyazaki uh, films. <laughs> oh, I missed that. Beautiful. <laughs> I'll send you some, Margaret. They're so pretty. I also, a friend of mine, I just have to give her a shout out, uh, sent one to our group, like our friend group text. Someone had edited Bernie into um, the famous Ohad Naharan piece that appears in Minus 16, where everyone's in the chairs and there's a suit jacket. Any Dance with Chairs was so ripe for this. <laughs> Any Dance with Chairs. But she sent it to us with the comment, it's minus 16 degrees. That's why he needs the mittens. Uh, uh. Uh, and I, I, like that's a that's the joke <laughs> you know Lydia well I totally agree with you that it was great to see everybody unite over this one meme I do also want to argue that I think dancers were especially good at this because there's I mean I love dance people they see their own bodies so clearly and anybody who can apply that level of detail to the rest of the world is really funny like the the meme that I like best is Somebody took a shot from Chicago's cell block tango and they just added Bernie as one of the murderesses. But they also they put the caption where it's pop, six, squish, healthcare, Cicero, Lipschitz. And the fact that even healthcare has the two syllables of the original, which was uh uh, it's so perfect. It's so perfect. And it's absolutely out of a dancer's detail oriented mind. I love that. My favorites were the ones where he was photoshopped into a dance studio at the front, like an artistic director. It <laughs> <laughs> just really captured that that energy. Like, here I am. I'm doing my own thing. Because, like, pick pick a director. I, I can think of so many directors just recreating that exact pose and attitude at the front of the room. And I love that about it. Even with the mittens, like, like the, which very much have the vibe of those booties we all used to wear over our point shoes. I confession i'm actually wearing those around my apartment these days because that, that uh, it's cold that feels right and appropriate <laughs> so cozy all right we're gonna take a break when we come back we'll have our interview with trey mcintyre so stay tuned the pillow voices dance through time podcast brings listeners closer to notable personalities connected with jacob's pillow from 1933 to today Each episode brings treasures from the Pillow archives to life, sharing rarely heard recordings alongside personal stories and perspectives from leading artists, thought leaders, and innovators. Jacob's Pillow, lauded by the New York Times as the dance center of the nation, is a National Historic Landmark, it's a recipient of the prestigious National Medal of the Arts, and of course it's home to America's longest-running international dance festival. So be sure to listen to their podcast at pillowvoices.org or wherever you get your podcasts. So our guest on the podcast today is Trey McIntyre. Welcome, Trey. Thank you so much, Margaret. Trey is an acclaimed choreographer and photographer and now filmmaker as well. His dance company, Trey McIntyre Project, was a pretty stupendous success from its founding in 2005 until its closure in 2014. And recently, Trey launched Flatpak, which is an innovative new subscription service that kind of rethinks the creation and distribution processes for digital dance films. And that's what we're here to talk about today. But for a little context, can you actually go back in time and just talk about why you chose to close or rather transition, I guess, your dance company when you did? Why was it time to move on? Gosh, you know, that's an answer that evolves over time the more I think back and kind of look through all all the elements. I mean, I, I think the short answer was 
uh, at the moment that the decision came, um, I was completely overwhelmed. Uh, you know, this, you know, it was a successful company, you know, as, as you mentioned, but, you know, with success, I think it becomes greater expectation and, um, you know, the, the demands of, of meeting that level over a sustained period of time are just, there's so much. And, and essentially I stopped, had stopped viewing myself as an artist. You know, I was really an administrator and a leader and, you know, those, those were roles that I really got a lot out of and, and, you know, felt like I had a lot to contribute and I got a lot from, um, <clears throat> but in the end, who I am is an artist. And, you know, I, I had to, I had to make space for that. And that was ab- absolutely the case. I mean, we ended the dance company at its highest point, really. I mean, really kind of get to get to put that really lovely time up on the shelf and not, you know, not not see it come to a close out of any any problem, but rather um, really having fulfilled its mission. And um, you know, the transition really allowed me what I hoped it would, which is I I have felt like an artist again uh, ever since. And you know, any difficulties I had with the uncertainty of being a freelance artist, um, now I embrace them and love them. You know, I, I get to go to a company and, and really just just focus on the work. And there's a whole group of people there who are already ready to help me do that. And, and um, you know, their, their individual bottom lines aren't my responsibility. It's just making the best work I can. Um, so that, that's really, in essence, why the transition happened. And so you've been a photographer for a while. Let's talk about the timeline a little bit here, because was it after the closure of the company that you first started experimenting with filmmaking? Uh, let's see. Well, I, I have actually always had a camera in my hand really throughout my, my whole career, even from the early days when I danced with Houston Ballet. Um, you know, I, I remember I made a I made a feature length film shot on on Betacam in um, gosh, it would have been like '94. Uh, you know, before we all had our our camera in our hand all, all day long. I you know I just kind of BS'd my way into the local access television station and got use got use of their equipment and made a film back then. So you know, it's really it's really always been a part of my 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 thinking um, and. You know, I, I got serious about photography really when I stopped dancing with Houston Ballet. Um, I, I was transitioning to becoming a full-time freelance choreographer, and you know, it wasn't it wasn't taking up all my time yet, so I had more time to do creative work. And um, I was living in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, connected with a, a Yoda of photography, and he really taught me how a camera worked, and really and really you know explained it from the inside out in a way that that developed a lifelong passion. So. You know, I, I've never really thought of myself simply as a choreographer. Um, I, I think of myself as, as an artist who I want to use whatever medium is at my disposal to to express something, to bring, you know, to, to shed light on something, to um, show it in a, in a different way, in a way that's unique to what, what my voice is. So, um, you know, I think I'm, I'm constantly mastering new mediums that I can that I can utilize. And, and so film shooting video and and photography that is certainly that's certainly part of the stable for me mm-hmm. and how has your work in each of these different media how has each medium informed the other how does working mm. in photography influence your dance work your choreography how does working in film influence your photography yeah yeah they they each they each really have very specific aspects 
at least in terms of my process or what I've discovered in the process that does very, very clearly influence the others. Um, you know, I would say that, you know, film, well, I would say photography and working, you know, in, for concert dance um, have, they're the most separate in a certain way and inform each other um, the most directly. Um, you know, it, it's tough as a choreographer to have such limited time in the studio and you, you know, you must be creative during these hours in the day. You've got, you've got this time to do it and you get really good at turning that switch on and not waiting for inspiration to come. Um, you know, when, when shaping a photograph, um, you know, there's a much more relaxed time schedule. Um, you know, whether or not, you know, you may, you may have a, for example, a space rental that limits the time, but you know, there's no downside if something doesn't come of it during that period of time. And so, um, you know, working with a collaborator the way I might with a dancer, um, in a more, uh, in a more fluid environment, um, is just a different way of, of training the brain. And then, you know, most of my photography really focuses on nudes. And I, I think that there's a, a gap that I've bridged in my thinking where, you know, I've always felt weird about tights or just kind of that, you know, this idea of, okay, we're, we're presenting the human body as a beautiful thing, but not exactly like there's things we must cover up. And there's, there's this kind of an inherent celebration and shame that are not really, uh, that aren't really voiced. And so to to work with because I generally work with in, in photography with dancers or with athletes or people that have some kind of discipline that's a, around their their bodies, um, to kind of do away with that and to be in this space of it's real intimacy. You know, it's it's pretty much always just myself and whoever I'm working with um, to create this this space that both celebrates and makes us a safe capsule for the for a, a human a human being to be naked in, to experience this metaphor of being your your true self, of exposing yourself, of being seen. Um, there's something really exceptional and privileged about getting to be a part of that and getting to be the person who makes that space. Um, and so I think that there's there's parts of that kind of level of intimacy that have been found there. I can find them now in the dance studio. You know, I can I can create uh, a, a safe space for someone to explore creatively or emotionally in the studio because I'm, I'm more tuned into it. I'm more tuned into what the needs of that person might be in that moment. Um, and that's important because a dance studio is a place of chaos. You know, it's so many different personalities and needs and people and noise. And, you know, I'm incredibly distractible uh, by noise. Just, you know, I, I, it's something I've had to master. And so to be able to hone in and to care for people in that environment um, has been an acquired skill. And so, and so I guess I would go, I would go further to say then with film, I feel like the, the film I've, I've been making, especially for Flatpak is a true combination of both how I work in the studio and how I work as a photographer. Um, it's really been a place to kind of merge those, those two worlds together and, um, and, and to, to create something, uh, create something different. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the beginnings of Flatpak because yeah. you started this particular adventure back at like the dawn of quarantine last year. Is that right? Correct. What was sort of your aha moment? You know, it it all seemed it 
I, I don't generally have aha moments, things I think kind of they sort of build, but this one definitely came in that way. Um, I was in Houston, Texas. I just finished a premiere for Houston Ballet. There was this epic for 12 men and it was all David Bowie music. And we were just <clears throat> so jazzed for the premiere to come up and the Wortham Theater closed on opening night. I mean, we got, all, <laughs> we did everything except the performance. And so there was this kind of momentum that, well, that was stilted. Um, I made the choice to stay in Houston because that was really the time that the New York, um, I, I, I live in Brooklyn. And so the, um, that's really the time New York was becoming quite bad in terms of COVID. And I thought, you know, best to stay where you are. And so I got an Airbnb in Houston, but immediately started thinking, you know, I've had this great relationship with these dancers. They're all sitting around waiting for what's going to happen next. How could, how could I do something? Um, and, and it, especially because Texas has just been so warm and great. I thought, you know, we could probably safely be making some dance films outdoors. Um, we're going to have to grapple with it, this at some point. Let's find a way to be making some content. And so, you know, I didn't want to ask anyone to work for free. Um, I, I, it just seemed like a bad moment. I mean, I'm sure everybody would have, would have done it just because we wanted things to do, but it's, you know, it was an uncertain time. And I think honoring artists, however I could, um, was an important thing. And so um, I made three, these three dance projects and I fundraised each one and was able to come up with a small budget for each. And uh, I just talked to everybody involved in each project and said, hey, how would you feel about if we did this super egalitarian split and we just, we divided up. Um, and people really responded well to that. You know, it, it, it ain't much, but if we're all, if we all have the same stake in it, then, then that feels really good in a moment like this. And so, um, after doing several of those, I started to think about, well, okay, what's next? And I've had a Patreon account, um, which is Patreon is basically a, a crowdfunding site for our artists to have ongoing support for their work. Um, I've had one for my photography, which is at patreon.com slash Trey McIntyre. Um, I've had that for about three years. And that's the main place I show, showcase my photographic work. Um, and that's been quite successful. I mean, I, you know, as an unknown photographer, I've, I've built a pretty great and loyal audience on that platform. And I thought, well, okay, well, I, I definitely probably have more, you know, there's more people who know who I am as a choreographer. You know, why don't I, why don't I start experimenting with this same crowdfunding model, but making dance films? And, <clears throat> you know, that was really the aha moment for me that I thought, well, actually, at this moment in history, this is probably so much bigger than just what I want to do with my own work. And the idea really came to relaunch the dance company as a new idea, um, not as a community of dancers in one place, but as a worldwide community of artists who are coming together to what I think is developing a new medium. Um, you know, I think it's not so much dance film as it is really trying to understand this new interaction, you know, where we, we are all now at this moment where we're spending so much more time with our screens because that's, that's the option we have um, during quarantine. And as much as dance companies have tried to bridge that gap and, and make more digital work, there just hasn't been the time and the resource and the audience focus. Well, now is the time. And I thought, you know, it's now, it's now or never baby. And, I also love the idea of trying to just to build some income, whatever it might be for artists who are in such an uncertain, uncertain place. And so, you know, honestly, this went from idea to implementation in about 30 days. And, you know, I made that leap because I understood the, the, the crowdfunding model quite well and thought I had worked out a lot of the kinks in that way. 
Um, and so I just launched into it and started reaching out to people and, you know, and I've really tried to make my focus the most diverse community of artists I possibly can at all levels, being, being a gender, race, background of um, kind of dance, notoriety as a, as a dance maker, um, or even not necessarily dance people like um, the actor Alan Cumming is work, working on making, making a piece. And I, I, I think any, and any idea that can come into this forum and anybody who has an, a, a real idea um, that they want to try and take this somewhere. Um, I want to. I want to see if this platform can really make the space, support them in making the work, and continually build the audience that's going to bring the resource and desire for them to keep making it. Now, my next question is about what your overall mission for the project is. I feel like you already answered that, but maybe a way to expand on it is to talk about the name. Where did the name Flatpak ah. come from? Well, it feels kind of like that, you know, the furniture you get from Ikea that comes in those flat packs and it's just a bunch of boards stacked. That's really kind of a nothing thing. And, you know, when that began, I think that was maybe like a 70s, 80s invention as a way of making furniture more affordable and more accessible to people, but of a certain like, you know, level of design and something beautiful they can have in their home. And you get this, this seemingly, you know, dull two, you know, uh, two dimensional box it opens up and comes to life in your home. Um, and in a certain way, the computer screen is that, you know, it's a, it's a flat two dimensional thing and it's really nothing until the breath of the interaction, until the breath of the art um, comes into it. So it's kind of, it's kind of really a metaphor of that about how, how uh, something can have life breathe into it depending on, on um, what you do with it. And can you talk a little too about, you mentioned that you're prioritizing diversity when it comes to choosing this group of artists working on this project, but how else have you gone about curating this group of artists? Because there are some really extraordinary people involved. Yeah, it's a really wonderful group. I mean, I really just keep throwing the fishing line out there. You know, I, I um, have fortunately in the past couple of years interacted with a lot more dance makers. I think um, choreography is generally a pretty lonely profession because you're usually the only choreographer around other than who the artistic director is you might be working for. Um, but uh, gosh, I guess it's been three, four years ago uh, now, I participated with San Francisco Ballet in their um, Festival of New Works where they had 12 premieres in seven days. And it was just a remarkable thing to be a part of. Um, and one of the benefits was just meeting so many great people. And so, um, some of the collaborators for Flatpak came just from those meetings. Um, but then I'm really, I, I, I really do not want it to be dictated solely by my own aesthetic. Um, you know, I, I want, I want it, I want it to be a welcome place for all kinds of voices. So I've been scouring the internet and reaching out to people on Instagram and, um, you know, asking, asking other people who they like and who they've seen. And, you know, really people, people either respond by like, being really excited about it and being ready for it, whether or not they've had experience making video or not, or I can tell it's just not where, where they are at this moment. So, you know, one of the, one of the outcomes from launching it so quickly is just really needing people who are ready to go and ready to, ready to make it now. I'm certainly sowing the seeds for people who have a longer process and one of the benefits of this platform, I think is, well, you know, we don't really have to book a venue or, start selling seats. So, you know, I can be quite flexible if someone needs more time or if they, if this is a, a far reaching plan, um, 
you know, everybody's process is different in that way. And how about the work that you yourself have made for Flatpak? Because have you made, is it five pieces at this point? Five. Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. What have, what have yeah. been, what have you been vibing on during that period? What, what have your inspirations been? Um, it, it's, it, it's run the gamut in a certain way. And I think it's the, that it's kind of in the same way I approach any piece that I make is that, you know, I want to learn something new from, from each one. Um, especially early on, a lot of them are run by resource, meaning, you know, I, there's not a, there's not a budget. There's got a lot of beg, bar, begging and borrowing uh, to make things happen. Um, you know, they're inspired by what dancers I have available to work with. Um, one of the big things that's been important to me is to have um, original music for each one. Um, if anything, just to also provide an opportunity for a composer or, um, or a singer or, or a musician to, to be able to, to make something um, right now. Um, the most recent piece I made uh, is based on the myth of the Minotaur um, from Greek mythology. And I, it really came from a day I went with um, uh, the dance writer, Alistair McCauley. He invited me to go to the British Museum while I was in London recently. And um, I'm not a big museums fan, but he talked me into it. And what a great <laughs> host he was. Yeah. I really learned. There's so anyone much. to go to a museum with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Imagine. I mean, and, and so what I was really, you know, what was really excellent was he knew so many references to different pieces and how they had inspired different choreographers. It even um, may have inspired a specific movement so like he could identify what it, what it came from. And, you know, that in a certain way seems like a thing from a different time you know, to go to a museum for that kind of content. But of course I have to think, well, that's certainly well before the digital age. And, you know, I have access to literally anything without leaving my home. And so a museum was probably a more special thing uh, in that time. So, you know, I just set, I just set the task for myself to choose something from that day. And, um, you know, I'm so, I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm very interested in Jungian psychology and the Greek mythology, certainly, um, it plays into that heavily. So, uh, you know, I, I chose the, the Minotaur myth um, and for a couple of reasons. One was um, I was working with this dancer, Daniel McCormick, who's a dancer with um, um, English National Ballet. And um, he's somebody who I've ha had just kind of this happenstance relationship with. He, um, he was a, in the Jackson competition uh, and, and won dancing a solo of mine there, uh, which is also where he got his, his job in London. And then he competed in the emerging dancer competition there, performed that same solo again and won. Um, and so uh, it, it was nice to kind of uh, reconnect with him and make something. And he, he has this really like intense, like he's a kind of a brooding, handsome, dark featured, like he's got this kind of like masculine bull energy um, that kind of made sense um, as a, as a character. And then additionally, I had gotten to know the, uh, the people that ran this new facility called um, uh, Hackney Depot, which is in a kind of 70s, 80s uh, bus garage building. And the top floor used to be the lounge and locker area for the, for the drivers, but it's been sitting empty for quite a while. So these developers have taken it over and they're, they're making it into these workspaces for artists or you know, people who craft people. Um, and so I got talking to them and, and while it's under construction, you know, it basically makes this labyrinth that's very much, you know, there was just a good, a nice fit for, for the mythology of the, of the labyrinth from the story. So I just, I asked them if, um, 
if they would let me use it. And they were so generous in that they they also entered in as one of the artistic collaborators, meaning they're they're accepting an equal part of the of the profit, um, just like everybody else. Uh, and you know, which probably doesn't even get close to what their rental fees might be. But you know, in an effort to really support something and to support work being made, because I think that organization is very dedicated to to their mission, which is to allow work to get made. Um, you know, they, they struck the same bargain. So that's just, that's just one of them. And then, you know, the other ones, like I, I worked with a, an animator, Jason Sievers out of Boise, Idaho, who I met uh, when I was there and had my dance company. Um, and so there's long, you know, there's long animated sequences of uh, claymation. And so I got to work, you know, basically like collaborating, uh, you know, and with, with Play-Doh uh, to make a dance. So it's kind of run the gamut. Have you been watching any any Graham recently? All of your references for that last piece seem very Graham centric. Well, you know, I, I um, who knows if maybe I'd heard that in the past, but I don't, I don't think I knew that. Um, I'm not that familiar with with Graham's work, but of course, after I made the film, Alistair gave you full <laughs> education say, on yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what our connection had been. So <laughs> I hope it just came through the ether and not you know accidentally from something I knew from the past. So clearly everybody has said over and over that the dance world, especially right now, is in desperate need of viable, sustainable approaches to performance. That's true during the pandemic in a specific type of way. It'll still be true after the pandemic. And you seem like one of the few people who's figured out a real solution to that problem. Do you think this is a model that's like Trey McIntyre specific? Or do you think this is something that other people could or should replicate in the dance world or beyond the dance world? It's hard to say. It may be too early to say so. Um, you know, I, I think I think every company having their own um, paid platform may not be the way to go. I mean, I, I, I what I would love, I would love it if, for example, if Flatpak developed such an audience that different organizations would want to move in and out of it and, and you know, basically be a part of something that could expose different people to different voices and not not keep it segmented, but keep it um, as a medium that could reach the, the world. Um, you know, just, just meaning like not each company keeping their audience pulled over here and my audience pulled over here. Like I, you know, I would love it if Fat, Flatpak had, had um, contributors from, from, you know, corners of the world that we didn't even know dance, dance existed. Um, you know, I, I do think that, companies are going to have to find a meaningful way to utilize this medium. And I don't think that only broadcasting stage performances is the way to do that. Um, It's different. Um, They can be wonderful. And I've I've seen some that are done wonderfully, but you know, there's something missing, you know, and there's a part of it that makes you long for being back in the theater. And so I don't think that's exactly it. Um, And so I do think that, that dance organizations um, really need to make space for the development of how do we make this medium its own thing, its own art form that still utilizes the beauty of dance, um, but takes advantage of what's possible here that's not possible on stage. And I think that remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. Do you th- had there not been a pandemic, had COVID not happened? Do you think you still would have ended up creating Flatback? Did this sort of, did this mm. crisis kind of accelerate or crystallize a plan that was already taking shape, or was it really the the inspiration for all of it? 
Boy, what a great question. It, it's hard to say. I, I think it was not something I was thinking about uh, pre-pandemic. So, um, you know, the, the early months of it were blissful for me, honestly, because I had great health. Um, I was away from my home city. So there was no, there was this zero obligation, but full creative inspiration. And I had never really had that experience where I wasn't obligated to do every, anything. And I could really, there was really space to kind of hear what my artistic muse was saying. You know, it, it, I, I just had never known that. Um, and immediately it was going toward making digital work. So, you know, I think I would have arrived at, at some point needing to just decide, well, how do I get this to people? Um, but I, you know, I don't think it would have happened so quickly, certainly without, without the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're talking about space to think. And I feel like that's true for so many dancers and also dance organizations. The pandemic has sort of given them the time to think about a lot of problems that have been plaguing the dance world for a while. And you were talking about the egalitarianism of this platform, about, you know, making a conscious effort to include diverse voices. How do you think how else do you think Flatpak kind of dovetails with the other movements that we've seen happening in the dance world during the pandemic, um, after the murder of George Floyd? How does that all kind of tie together? You know, I, I think the big question is, and this was this was the question that I kept in the forefront, even when we had a dance company, <clears throat> which was, you must always think about why you exist. And I don't think to say to make dance is reason enough um, because you've got to make sure someone cares besides you. Um, and, and I say that just because dance takes so much resource. It's just so much money. It's such an uh, enormous machine. And if it is existing for a very small segment of the population, it's a wonderful thing. A beautiful Swan Lake is a miraculous thing. But if that's happening for a very small group of people, then I don't think it, that it's worth it. And so the beautiful part of this moment is that we must face these things right now. We must really look hard at is what is the is the thing that we're doing, is it something that matters? Um, and so I think all these things dovetail into the same thing, whether it is who is being represented, who it's being presented for. Does the content of this work really speak to this moment in time? Um, all those things are the big question of like, what are we doing on this planet? And I can't, I, I kind of actually think one, one of the things we can get quite guilty of is that, you know, dance takes everything you got. Like you start as a little kid and you devote your life to it. And it's just so hard. Ballet in particular is just so hard to achieve. And it's so specific that you get so caught up into that, that, that you just forget most of the audience doesn't know if your double tour landed well. They have no idea. And like that can really be the most important thing to us. And so it's such an important time to really, we can t step back 200 yards and think like, okay, that's all great. And we can keep that as a base, but what really matters in all this? And what can we make paramount that makes dance a part of the world today? And if we can't do that, my personal belief is we shouldn't invest in it. Um, but my personal belief is that we can do that. We just need to make the choice to, to do so. And so um, 
in that way, I'm, I have so much gratitude for this moment in history because these things, it's just, you know, there's an earthquake happening and, you know, you've, you've got to take care of your business or um, things are not going to work out for you. So finally, um, it seems like this project is is constantly evolving, but what would you say at this point are your goals for the future of Flatpak? Like, how do you envision its place, especially in a, in a post-pandemic world? Um, I would love to see it be one of the elements of, of um, how dance is presented. Um, I don't, I don't think it's a, a risk of, of enveloping or replacing live dance or theater. Um, but how amazing, you know, if say, if a choreographer was making a world premiere for a live performance, if there was an accompanying film um, that was maybe an additional element or a different way of envisioning part of it, um, that could extend the re- reach of what that what work is. Um, and I, I, I wanted, I, I would love to see discoveries happen. Like, real, like really, what's the thing that we haven't thought of in the way that this can jump off the screen? You know, is it the way we use sound? Is it the way we ask the person in their home to participate? Um, those are the things I find really exciting. Like there, there's none of this, that I, as much as I want this to provide income and to help people right now, there's none of this, I think, as an emergency effort to, to save the day. Um, it's, it's utilizing the opportunity of this moment to see, to see what, what I and what the organization can help contribute to our future and actually addressing what the world's asking for right now. Mm-hmm. It's been so nice talking to you and getting to know you a little bit. Thank you for... The pleasure's, pleasure's been mine. Thank you so much for having me. And um, before we, we say goodbye, can you talk a little about exciting things that you have on the horizon, new flat pack films that are coming up? Alan Cumming, can we talk about <laughs> what's Alan Cumming doing? <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, so many, like Alan, for example, kind of, ha- he's going to be collaborating with Stephen Hoggett, the chor- choreographer. And, you know, the, they're they're working on a project that's eventually going to be. Uh, I guess I can't say much about it, but they're, but um, they're already working on a, a stage project together. And you know, of course, because of of schedules and because of COVID, things kept getting postponed. And you know, so I can't say when that premiere is going to happen yet. But um, we just had a, a premiere by Laughlin Pryor, who's an incredibly talented choreographer um, from New Zealand. Um, and then coming up, we'll have a work by Owen Dillon, who is a dancer with. Um, with Parsons Dance, um, followed by the second premiere by Elise Rocket, who's an amazing choreographer from Los Angeles and just a dear human being. And so um, so keep an eye out for those. Oh, her first piece was so great. Banter, that was so great. Um, oh, awesome. I love I loved that one too. Yeah. Um, great. And where should people go to find these films? Yeah, the address is fltpk.com. So it's flat pack without any vowels or without a C. <laughs> and we'll link to that in the episode description to make it easier too. Awesome. Thank you so much, Trey. Thank you. Take care. Thanks again to Trey. And man, I really wish I could have been a fly on the wall during his museum outing with Alistair McCauley, which sounds like it was epic. Um, anyway, in addition to visiting the Flatpak website, please be sure to keep up with Trey's dance projects on Instagram at Trey McIntyre Dance. And you can also see what he's up to as a photographer by following at Trey McIntyre Photo. Lots of beautiful things on both accounts. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We'll be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, friends. Bye, everyone. Bye.
The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Neenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those football sounds. Find out more about the Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.